Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and each Friday we invite our listeners to take 10 ahead of their weekends and get the latest economics wrap from our in-house economics team. Our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, joins me again today. Welcome, Matthew. Hi, Craig. Good to be back. Excellent. Let's get into it. Uh, It's great to have you back again, Matthew, and what a difference a week makes. Last week, we were discussing the rise in global COVID cases and the tug of war this was having on our financial markets with that ongoing wall of stimulus. And now, of course, the US federal regulator has further relaxed that Volcker rule. However, it was the home front that dominated Australia's headlines with the emergence of some localised spikes in Melbourne, which show just how easily COVID-19 can get out of hand. Matthew, have we been too naive in thinking the worst was behind us? Well, Craig, until we find a vaccine and until it's distributed globally, we'll have to live with COVID and cluster outbreaks will be part of the social and economic landscape. And until we find a vaccine, we need to put aside ideas of returning to a pre-COVID world, be it in the economy, in financial markets or in social life. Yeah, picking up on that social life comment at the end there, there's been reports this week of renewed panic buying. Who would have thought? And of course, Melbourne has seen increased lockdowns with thousands of police on the streets, together even with drones enforcing these new lockdown laws. And then earlier in the week, we had the New South Wales and Victoria border closed as well. Australia certainly appears to be in that phase two, Matthew, but are there unintended consequences to be aware of? Well, local lockdowns will become the norm as social distancing protocols are inevitably breached, either knowingly or unknowingly. Um, And if we don't have local lockdowns, the risk of nationwide lockdowns increases. And with it, reversions to those antisocial behaviours referred to, Craig, such as as hoarding. Um, However, local lockdowns are themselves not without social consequences. For example, if you look at some of the uh, most recent outbreaks across the globe, they are occurring in predominantly working class areas where people can't afford to stay away from work um, even when they're sick. And and not coincidentally, they are often in culturally diverse areas with populations that sometimes find difficulty in accessing government financial assistance. Places like Leicester in the UK, Mondragoni in Italy, Goodisloe in in Germany, and indeed the northern suburbs uh, of Melbourne. Breakouts in these areas uh, run the risk of social division as frustrations with um, the local lockdowns are focused on uh, ethnic groups in particular. But aside from social issues, the presence of COVID means ongoing social distancing requirements, and when that breaks down, localised lockdowns. Both policies, social distancing and lockdowns, uh, impose speed limits on the economy uh, that will prevent a full recovery until a vaccine renders us uh, COVID-free. Yeah, and it's interesting. We had uh, the health minister, uh, Mr Hunt, of course, uh, reminding us uh, how to wash our hands and cough correctly. Uh, So it just goes to show that perhaps we are getting a little relaxed in Australia. The timing of this, of course, is all very interesting for policymakers with the review of JobKeeper scheduled for July. Matthew, I was hoping to get into this. What does this mean for government policies? For example, does it mean that JobKeeper and even JobSeeker programs will need to be extended? Well, at first blush, it would seem that if the economy is going to be underperforming, then the government should extend its stimulus program, including the JobKeeper program. Uh, And that 
was the predominant view of economists up until recently when some are starting to change their view on this. Um, our view, in fact, is that the JobKeeper program should end as scheduled by the government. Yes, yeah, so I want to focus a little bit more on that point, Matt, if that's okay. The support packages by Australia were, were recently praised by the IMF um, as really helping our economy sort of get through the worst of it. So the last comment you just made there, in hindsight, do you think that JobKeeper and to a certain extent JobSeeker has given some of the wrong incentives to our economy? For example, there's this new term of zombie companies started to become part of our vernacular. What's your take there? Well, that's, that's certainly part of the story and part of the reason why I think uh, the JobKeeper program needs to uh, end as, as scheduled. We should keep in mind that the original purpose of the JobKeeper program was to keep workers and their businesses connected while businesses went into hibernation. Now, when the government first proposed JobKeeper, the period of hibernation was thought to be six months, hence the end of the program in September. And it was also thought that after six months, the economy would emerge from hibernation to essentially a COVID-free world. But we now know that we'll not be COVID-free at the end of September. Many firms are not going to be able to adapt, and the longer COVID persists, the more government policy must change from supporting the status quo, which was the original intention of JobKeeper, to facilitating change to the new COVID world. JobKeeper works against that by propping up companies that have little chance of survival, disincentivising workers to seek out new employment opportunities, and by tying up public and private resources in businesses that won't survive at the expense of businesses that can. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, but here's the concern. If the economy is still suffering from COVID-19, won't ending JobKeeper support lead to that sharp decline in growth, which then you know hurts our economy, that so-called fiscal cliff, particularly if there's other programs starting to come off as well, such as temporary rent reductions and also that bank loan holiday? Well, I don't think that the end of the JobKeeper program on its own will lead to uh, the social so-called fiscal cliff that you described, Craig. The JobKeeper program uh, in its entirety was $70 billion, or about 3.5% of annual GDP. It now looks like the government will spend probably closer to about $60 billion on the JobKeeper program, which will still represent 3% of annual GDP. But the thing to bear in mind is only a fraction of the $60 billion actually finds its way into the economy in the form of direct expenditure or direct stimulus. Among the leakages from the full cost of the program to the eventual spend are things like tax liabilities, savings by households and businesses to shore up their balance sheets, expenditures on imported goods, and returns to foreign and institutional investors in Australian businesses, which are also uh, being supported by the assistance to firms by the JobKeeper uh, payments. In addition, we must remember that in the absence of JobKeeper payments, those workers who lose jobs will still be eligible for job seeker benefits. After we account for these leakages, uh, we estimate that less than $20 billion is finding its way into the economy as direct expenditure over the June and September quarters. And we estimate, estimate that the withdrawal of uh, JobKeeper payments in September 
would lead to a hit of somewhere um, between 1% and 2% in the December quarter. While that is a still a significant hit to the economy, we think it can be absorbed if we can keep COVID under control and can, can, can continue to reopen the economy. But as you say, if households still require support, rather than continue the JobKeeper program, making a permanent increase in job seeker payments would be a far less distortionary policy and lead to a better longer-term outcome. Yeah, simply amazing. A $40 billion leakage there, Matthew described. Fantastic insight. Um, the answer, of course, is, is the vaccine. And despite early hopes with firms like Gilead, uh, this does seem to be a fair way off still. Um, a vaccine does, however, seem inevitable. And together with our economy, we'll be able to get put this COVID sort of uh, pandemic behind us. With this in mind, Matthew, how do we start to prepare for a two-stage outlook of pre and post vaccine? And will this create some systemic trends in our economy? Yeah, Craig, I think that's right. The longer the pre-vaccine period persists, uh, the greater the risk that some trends what we're seeing emerging now will become entrenched. Uh, at the same time, other trends that may have taken years to evolve will be accelerated and brought, brought closer to the, to, to the current uh, period. This will be a very difficult time for investors. Um, for example, how far in the future do I need to extrapolate some existing trends? And how much into the present do I need to bring other trends that I thought were going to emerge later down the track? But if you look at the area of persistence, Matthew, what are some of those trends that you see are going to have longevity? Well, an example of a current trend is the rise in public and private debt. The longer it takes to exit the COVID period, the longer governments were required to provide support to the economy and the more businesses and households will run down savings. Uh, this means that both public and private debt levels will be higher uh, the longer it takes before we find a vaccine and the longer the period of debt consolidation will be in that post-vaccine period. The longer the period of debt consolidation, uh, the longer central banks will need to suppress interest rates in order to avoid uh, credit crises. Investors will be placed in quite a difficult um, position in terms of their asset allocation decision. Do I accept lower rates of return as, as yields are lower for longer? Or do I try to increase my return by shifting up the risk spectrum? Matthew, I want to pick up on that uh, reference you made to the asset allocation decision. Uh, retail is currently being hit hard by the COVID experience. And of course, we've had some areas within retail doing particularly well, such as providers of consumer staples like the Woolies, the Coles, the Aldis of the world. But of course, other areas are being hit quite hard. Can retail as an aggregate recover? Well, you know, bringing it back again to the uh, to this issue of trends, an example of existing trends that COVID is accelerating is uh, the increasing expenditure, well, the increased share of expenditure uh, on health on the one hand, and the increase in online penetration in spending on the other. Um, both of those. Uh, trends which have been accelerated by COVID have significant implications for retail real estate. Um, now, a response to these trends by managers of uh, retail real estate assets uh, and, and a response that we have already had in place at QIC prior to COVID is to shift uh, towards a more mixed-use model of tenancy 
in shopping centres, away from the current tenant mix, which is typically dominated by clothing and department stores, uh, a tilt towards the inclusion of medical centres within uh, retail assets has the advantage of both capturing the trend towards health spending and also protecting against online pre uh, penetration. Uh, in addition to that, I think shopping uh, centre managers um, that actually they actually have uh, quite a significant amount of control over the shopping environment, particularly when you compare it to other shopping environments like the high street. And, and this is an advantage that could be used to impose social distancing, to impose high levels of cleaning, and to build confidence that centres actually provide a safe shopping environment. But this will require managers of these assets to reimagine the way they run centres and the way they promote the benefits of shopping centres, as well as changing the tenant mix. Yeah, thanks, Matthew. And it just sort of shows that that entrepreneurial ability to sort of uh, transition assets uh, is very vital in this sort of fight against the COVID and certainly does sort of reinforce that idea of a town centre approach. Thank you for sharing your insights into how our economy can react as we continue to move through the phases of the pandemic into what we hope is a recovery soon. The decision for policymakers as well, Matthew, is a really interesting one with that uh, description you made around JobKeeper and, and JobSeeker. Thank you for listening to our podcast series. Uh, please have a wonderful weekend ahead, particularly those US listeners of ours who are celebrating the 4th of July.